You're listening to Speaking of Racism, the podcast dedicated to frank, honest, and respectful discussions about race and racism in the U.S. I'm your host, Jen Kinney. Pull up a chair and let's talk. Special thanks to Grapes for the music. The song is I Don't Know featuring Jay Lang. Awesome. So today I am joined by my friend Tina Strawn, who is an anti-racism advocate, activist, educator, teacher. She is a yoga teacher and an all-around amazing human being. And Tina and I were actually just hopping on here a little impromptu to talk about the Netflix documentary, and I use quotes for documentary that Chelsea Handler just put out on dun, 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 Friday, September 13th. And it is called Hello Privilege. It's me, Chelsea. So yeah, so we watched it and I actually watched it because Tina had mentioned on Facebook that she was watching it. And so I'm like, what? I don't even know about this. So I hopped on, I watched it and we talked a little bit about our initial reactions and then decided to do this podcast because I'm seeing people now recommend it. And I was like, no, don't recommend it. But we watched it again. So Tina, why don't you tell me all about how you found out about it and just your thoughts on it. Sure. So I was sitting down on a Sunday afternoon, picked up the remote. The wife was doing something else. So I said, let me just take a, this opportunity to see what's going on on Netflix. Let me just watch something. Mm-hmm. So I'm scrolling and I see Chelsea Handler and hello, privilege, it's me, Chelsea. And I read the description and I was like, no way. She's <laughs> not about to talk about white privilege. What is happening. Uh-huh. So of course, being the anti-racism educator that I am, I could not pass this up. So I had to watch it. And I mm-hmm. sat there for um, the whole hour and four minutes and I watched it. And I think my first reaction, which is of course normal and to be expected, is I saw it through the eyes of a black woman. And so I had a lot come up, a lot of reactions mm-hmm. sitting and watching it initially. Yeah. So what was your first take on it? I'm kind of, you know, now that we watched it again, and it was interesting because Mm -hmm. I feel like this would be a very different podcast if I hadn't watched it a second time. And the only reason I did is because you said you were watching it. So I'm like, you know, I should watch it again. And then that way I can take better notes and, you know, walk people through piece by piece. But I have to say, like, my perspective is different today than it was just yesterday. So do you want to talk about like your first impression and then maybe your second and compare and contrast that a bit? Yeah. And I feel the same way that you do. I mean, had we talked about it, I think my specific comment to you on Facebook is, you know what, this gave me a headache. I'm going to bed. Like I didn't even want to dive into it at the moment because again, I'm watching it and as a black woman and having those natural reactions come up and I just had all kinds of issues and I noticed so many problematic things and definitely needed to just kind of sit with it and process Mm -hmm. it. So yeah, to your point, watching it again, I looked at it through the lens as an educator and knowing mm-hmm. that in the spaces where I am as an anti-racism facilitator, someone um, who does go into spaces and I create spaces to unpack these types of conversations, I definitely looked at it differently the second time. And I think it was I'm I'm glad that I saw I looked at it and watched it again. Yeah, because I would literally I I went from I would never recommend anybody watch this Mm -hmm. to okay I can see now where this could be helpful because Mm -hmm. for me watching it initially as a white woman who's been doing this work for so long I just I'm in I'm listening I'm seeing everything that is highly problematic I'm upset Mm -hmm. like I emotionally responded to it. And that was interesting in itself to then watch it with a different mindset today, because, you know, I had a friend who recommended it yesterday to uh, her friends and, and people on Facebook. And I DM'd her and I was just like, no, why are you recommending this? And she said to me, look, I think it's not a bad thing for an entry level. Look at this. And so I thought about it a little bit and I'm like, well, hmm. so that combined with your recommendation to 
rewatch, I then put on different goggles in a sense and was looking at it more from the perspective of the white people that I would love to talk to and try to talk to, but who really just don't want to engage the discussion. And I'm thinking, well, maybe they would watch Chelsea talk mm. about it. And then I, I shifted, like, what perspective am I watching it from? So mm. that's that's my goggle shift from day one to day two. Yeah, and the same with me in that my initial gut reaction my first time watching it, I said, oh, there's, there's no way this is something that can be used for educational purposes. This is not something that I'm going to recommend to people that I work with to use as a resource or a tool. Right. Um, being in the space of anti-racism work, you and I, for example, cannot help but to look at something like this with a critical side eye is, yeah. is how I'm describing it. So I, I my my initial thoughts were can't be used as a tool. I definitely didn't feel like there was enough pushback when white privilege was denied. Mm -hmm. I felt that it exploited black pain mm -hmm. when there was so much time spent with her ex-black boyfriend and talking to him and his family about what they went through. Um, I, I, and I felt like it just was too much of Chelsea talking and not enough listening. And, and I, I really, I've heard the perspective that you just shared as far as white people saying, well, this is a conversation starter. So I think if I step back and put on my educator hat, mm -hmm. absolutely. I can now say, is this something that we can have, that people can watch and, and enter into the conversation? Sure. But I think we have to be careful to not give Chelsea hand credit for starting the conversation. Yes. And I think that's going to continue to come up. And we have to remind people, let's be clear, Black people have started this conversation. We've mm -hmm. been saying these things. We have been talking about racism, white supremacy, white privilege, and oppression. So this conversation didn't just start because a wealthy white woman who has access to money and resources and has the ability and the privilege to create a documentary decided that she is going to start to have a documentary about this, right? Right. I think that's important mm -hmm. is that she didn't start the conversation and... So now, I, again, watching it a second time, I listened a little bit more to some of the things that she was saying from the perspective of a white person who wants to have conversations about privilege. Yeah. The things that she said that I noticed more today is as a white woman, she wanted to know what is her personal responsibility and how to be a better white person to people of color without making it a thing. And that's actually a quote from mm -hmm. her towards the beginning, right? We look right. at it and we have to say, okay, what, what was her purpose here? And if we are able to identify what was her purpose as a white woman creating this and as a white woman entering into the conversation about her white privilege and her acknowledgement of it for the first time, what was her intention in terms and what is the impact? So now mm -hmm. what are we, what is the takeaway? What are the action steps and what are the action items as a result of this realization that she's coming to? Right. Um, and so then I can go from there. I, I guess I kind of want to stop and hear what your thoughts are as far as, as a white person, you being in this work and in this space of anti-racism, where you know how important it is to have these conversations with white people, with her clarifying in the beginning that her desire with this is to ask, what is my personal responsibility and how can she be a better white person to people of color without making it a thing? Mm -hmm. yeah. I feel like that's on target. What do you think? Okay. So initially when I was watching it, I was just watching white privilege in my mind. I'm like, this is a primary example of mm -hmm. intention versus impact. And so while her intention seemed really solid and really heartfelt, her impact is what I was most concerned about. And so the entire mm -hmm. time I'm watching it and I'm just thinking and I can't get past this sense that if Chelsea understood her privilege and if she wanted to do this stuff, you know, like she can't not make it a thing, you know, mm -hmm. like she literally mm -hmm. produced a documentary starring herself and put it on Netflix. Right. And so it's just like this centering of experience 
experience from her perspective. And that was a struggle for me. Mm -hmm. So I really had to kind of process through that. But again, this was day one eyes as somebody mm -hmm. who's doing this work and, and struggling through these same questions. And yeah, I just, I just felt the sense like there was this point early on in the movie where she went to the open mic night at USC uh, when she went to speak. I mean, the woman who got up and said, like, you can clip this, but I'm embarrassed that you're here for this reason. I, and, and that's I, something I wrote down. Yeah. Yeah. And I just was like, yes. Absolutely. I totally feel that. And I appreciated that she kept it in because my sense was she's just trying to be real. So I don't know if that answers your question. So, it does. Yeah. So at the beginning, at the end of this, when we think about white people that are going to be watching this on Netflix and really feeling like, oh, this is a great start. We are entering the conversation. So now I feel equipped to become an ally, right? And become a white ally. That's where we have to say, then did this accomplish the goal of putting white people who desire to be allies on the path to what that looks like? And you just referenced the open mic night at USC. That was one of my absolute favorite parts of the mm -hmm. documentary. Yep. And as a matter of fact, I feel that if she had stopped the documentary at minute 12, which is right up until the end of that mic night, then we would have had a successful <laughs> you know, documentary in terms of listen. So at the beginning and at the end of the day, if we're coming into anti-racism work, it is about listening to Black voices. Right. And then aligning yourself with what those Black voices are telling you to do. So the quote specifically that I think you're referencing as well as, um, and that was, again, my favorite part. One of the, there was a black woman who said during that open mic night, she said, it's great to talk about it because you need to start somewhere, but where is the action going to start? This rabbit hole goes deeper than a documentary. Amen. And then what you said of the, the, the black woman that was towards the end of that segment, she said, this is just another example of white privilege. You are using your white privilege. What are you going to do with it other than come into the space and take? Yeah. So that I think is the missing component and the primary argument against this type of platform that Chelsea Handler has taken in creating this documentary. It's you have the privilege to create a documentary and what are you going to do with it? Mm -hmm. What happens? Where's the action after that? And that continued to be a common thread throughout the documentary. So the best parts of the entire documentary is when the black people were speaking. Mm -hmm. that, that's, that's, that, the, that's the reality. Absolutely. I mean, she talked to Ruby Sales and that was amazing, right? And I'm it just was, sitting there kind of going, was. you lucky. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> Not just yeah, that she right? recognizes Chelsea recognized how lucky, absolutely, and blessed she is to be able to sit with Ruby Sales at, of all places, one of my favorite places, the National yeah. Memorial for Peace and Justice. Right. Yeah. So yeah, no, and I'm I, I that was a moment. That was a full, complete yes moment. And those were the nuggets that I continued to recognize and acknowledge and appreciate and honor when I watched it the second time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I felt the same way. There were there were actually points because the first time I watched it, I probably swore a lot for the first half of it. <laughs> and then and I was so mad I was texting a friend of mine who was totally ignoring me. <laughs> <laughs> But this time I found myself even smiling a little bit and feeling bits of hope as I would listen to Ruby speak and as I would mm. listen to the professor in the library speak and Kamau Bell speak. And I don't know who the other gentleman was, but just, you know, to have sort of this beginning in this certain things came full circle. Um, but one thing that stood out to me early in when she was sitting and speaking with Tim Wise, she addressed that people were asking why she was doing the documentary. And she mm -hmm. mentioned because she thinks it's a white people problem. And if anything, I feel like this documentary, it's an example in itself of the difficulty because you have a white woman who comes to this realization and starts learning about white privilege and racism and injustice. And she wants to go and do something and she wants mm -hmm. to fix it. And she hears that it's a white people problem. And so what does she do? She goes and she creates a documentary. And this 
is something that we've talked about a lot. The desire for white people, when they start figuring things out, they want to go and do something. They want to fix it. And instead, what they often need to do is they need to sit and they need to listen mm. and they need to learn and they need to partner with people and not go off and charge off and create a movement or start public speaking. And so I thought that was interesting because I could really see that struggle with her when she gathered then with Tim and they sat and they spoke about things. And then she went, you know, and she said, and I'm off to talk to the white people now. When white people come into the awareness of their privilege, of their own racism and white supremacy, and they want to immediately go and start doing, mm -hmm. when the first thing when white people step into that awareness needs to be the listening and the learning and finding the nearest black educator to listen to and learn from. Mm -hmm. And as they begin to learn in that space and, and recognize that black people have been speaking about it, speaking out about it, educating about it, teaching about it. We, we already have a movement and exactly. white people are coming into it and coming into it late. Yeah. And then they not only are coming into it late, they immediately want to start taking up space. Yes. Right. As the woman at USC was saying. And so there, there has to be an intention for white people people who want to be allies to be willing to come into the space to listen and learn. You don't just start running and going and doing, you know, again, going back to watching it the second time. And I wrote down each segment. I wrote down that first, you know, she talked to Kevin Hart and Tiffany Haddish. And I mean, I, I have these 14 points because I go through, I wrote down every group, every person and group of people that she talked to. So first it was Kevin Hart and Tiffany Haddish. And then it was the open mic night at USC. Then it was sitting by the pool talking to Tim Wise. Then it was Ruby Sales. Then it was uh, Latosha Brown with Black Voters Matter in Atlanta, which I loved seeing that. So yes. again, watching it a second time and being able to really appreciate, oh, okay, we need to hear Latosha Brown talk about what happens when these rallies were going on around Georgia. Yes. Um, we, we need to hear that. That's, that's absolutely important. And then from there, she goes to Carol Anderson, who is the historian at Emory and who is also the author of the book White Rage. Now, what I noticed the second time is that as Chelsea was sitting with Dr. Anderson in the library, she had Dr. Anderson's book sitting right there, White Rage. I would have loved for her to reference <laughs> the yes, book. Yes. Right. So when we talk about what are some action items and what are some steps that white people after watching this documentary, what they can take away? Mm -hmm. Well, they go and they buy Carol Anderson's book, White Rage. That's something, that's a tool so that white people can start becoming educated by doing what? Listening to black voices. Mm -hmm. She's written a book about it. So that's, that's another great example. And then from there, she goes to Oktoberfest and we're talking to white people. I definitely didn't love that. Would want to hear your thoughts on it, but I didn't love that because that is more of what we already know in terms of white people denying privilege, denying racism, denying that it's even a thing. Right. So I do not feel that from the perspective of a white ally, I don't feel like there was enough pushback. I, I, I can see, you know, that I think she tried to make it a little bit funny. What are your thoughts about that? Yeah, that was the part that I really struggled with because when I watched it the first time, I just thought like when she went to Oktoberfest and then she went to meet in the house with the Republican women, mm -hmm. those two times, you know, it's like these are the things we hear every day. These are the things we sort of mm -hmm. argue against, fight against, attempt to educate. And to have it on screen like that, my initial thought was just like, if somebody's watching this, they're just going to go, oh, yep, I agree with that guy. I agree with that mm -hmm. one. Mm -hmm. There was no commentary to counter what they were saying, right? Like mm -hmm. when the one guy said that voting is not a right, that it's a privilege, I was like, dude, sit down. <laughs> like, don't even put him on the screen. Like, that. But at the same time, ta-da, this is where we're at. We have people who genuinely believe that voting is a privilege and not a right. So I had a hard time with those just because I'm like, okay, great. So we're highlighting the same old, same old here with no attempt to educate or push back. 
Sure. And I even, I, I agree with that. And then going to the women in Orange County and they are sitting around and, you know, I know again, from the perspective of the optics of it, right. We're in this very fancy house in Orange County and they're eating their wine and cheese and they're, you know, they're sitting around, they're having a very comfortable conversation about how they don't think that white privilege is a thing. And, and they're coming to these conclusions on their own. I think one of the women talked about, I don't think white privilege is a thing, but certainly black disprivilege is a thing. That woman in particular, I could see her mind like shifting and processing. And I thought it was interesting because I wrote down each point from when they were talking. And the initial woman started talking about how it's scary to talk about these things because she's worried that people will be branded racist right away. And I thought that was important from this standpoint. I think that people need to understand and and there's just a fundamental misunderstanding about the definition of racism. And so it's still this fearful thing like the good, bad binary. If you call me racist, I'm a horrible person. And so Mm -hmm. that highlighted to me and, and I would have loved to have heard somebody say something to that extent when she said that. And then the other woman who said that she believed then that there was privilege in varying degrees. See, she's correct that there is privilege in varying degrees, but she's incorrect in her assessment that there is a privilege that black indigenous people of color experience in this country. And so, you know, it's like there's there's this nuance that's required that is just totally lacking. And that conversation would have gone differently if two things had happened. If one, if there was a black woman who, or a black educator in that space talking to those women, mm-hmm. but let's be honest, how, how willing would they be to sit with a black person having this conversation? They sure. even acknowledged that they were hesitant to sit down with Chelsea to have the conversation. Right. Um, so that's one way that it would have been different, but it also would have been different. I feel if there was a white ally who had done their own work. Yes. Who had been um, experienced and educated because they started talking about things that Chelsea wasn't equipped to respond to. They started talking about the bootstrap theory and they started talking about affirmative action. And there's, you know, the, the one woman talking about, yes. you know, there, there's a, it's a privilege to have a mom and a dad in the home. And that's, that's lacking in black families. That Come made on. me so, so angry. And this is the thing. These are the, these were the things oh. that make us want to throw things at the television. Right. right and right. make us want to say, get, get these women out of here. Right. <laughs> so this is also the danger that we have when we say, oh, well, at least we're having the conversation, right? White people want to be praised when they want to enter into this hard conversation. The way that I looked at that conversation, that wasn't a hard conversation for them. They were able to express how they don't agree. They don't feel like white privilege is a thing. They felt comfortable whiteness was protected in that conversation. Whiteness was defended in that conversation. So there's no good. There's no progress. There's no action. There's, there was no listening that happened. So we have to be careful when white people say, well, at least we started the conversation or at least we're coming into the conversation. Yeah. I'm not giving you props for that. You, You don't get credit for that. Right. Because and you're having this conversation that's cyclical and right. that does not lead to any place of clarity, understanding, education, or knowledge about truly where the source of racism lies in each of you and internalized in even in myself as a black woman, that it is the water. And, and so we're having a conversation that does not bear any fruit with how were you able to identify and start to dismantle and tear down your own racism and white supremacy. Yeah, and that that is an interesting thing. I was thinking about that as you were speaking, that it would have been helpful had somebody like Tim Wise been there to be able to have those very direct aspects, you know, to, to be able to counter them and say, hey, let's just talk about racism and the definition. Let's just talk about privilege and the definition. Mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. if you don't have a shared definition and understanding of those terms alone, why even have the conversation? 
you know, right, um, right. because it was so clear that they didn't. It's like in the, the one woman, she was doing her gymnastics. She's like, well, no, I don't believe in white privilege, but I definitely <laughs> believe in black disprivilege. And it's like, <laughs> that's the most asinine twisting and, and mental gymnastics that I've heard. But I'll give her this. She's acknowledging that she sees an inequality, right? She's not ready to, to name it what it is because, you know, you can't be a Republican. And, and say you agree with white privilege, that would make right. you a bad Republican. And it sounded, you know, for her, another thing that she said that was just so typical was, I didn't get where I am today because of my privilege. She said, I got there because I worked my ass off. But in that, she even acknowledged that being a woman within the Republican Party is a challenge. So I think she's a very conflicted human being. <laughs> Because I'm like, you just sort of acknowledged that you're at a disadvantage, but the desire to take pride in our accomplishments as our own, you know, oh, the ego in that. And I think having these conversations should be stirring up that internal conflict. And that's yeah. the whole point of if that woman mm. in that space of being conflicted because she's able to recognize in some way that she's had some challenges being a woman in Republican politics, and she's able to acknowledge black disprivilege, which it's going to take her. I, I, if she has one more conversation with one person who knows what they're talking about, Chelsea mm -hmm. doesn't qualify for in that sense. I feel if she, if she wants to, she can be very easily led to, okay, Karen or whatever your name is. Let's talk about that. The fact that black disprivilege is not a thing. And you simply want to create, you want so badly for white privilege to not be a thing. Right. Then you want to create a new thing called black disprivilege. Right. You are, you are, you are saying what we're saying. So she just needs some more conversations. But again, is she in a place where she's even open to acknowledging truly? And, and this is where anti-blackness is the problem. Mm. She doesn't have a problem saying that as a woman, she's had face challenges, um, and some, and experienced some level of oppression as a woman getting into Republican politics. And yet she has a problem saying, that white privilege is a thing. And, but she has no problem saying that the black families lack either a mother or a father. So that's about her anti-blackness mm -hmm. that again, if you yeah. had a anti-racism educator or um, a leader in this movement, in that conversation, they would have been able to help her unpack that and address it and push back. And that's what, that's the whole point we, we, we have to also keep coming back to. If your allyship, if your anti-racism work is comfortable, then it's not anti-racism work. So mm -hmm. allowing that conversation to be so easy and so casual and so comfortable, we, we just missed. It was just a, a missed opportunity. Yeah. So next it went to um, Camu Bell and it, it's Rashad Robinson, who's the executive director of Color of Change, right? Um, mm -hmm. And this is where, I'll be honest, the first time I watched it, I did not hear the terms racism and white supremacy specifically. Mm -hmm. um, I think I was caught up similar to you in the emotion and my reactions to everything. And just, I was reactive yeah, initially. Same here. <laughs> but when I came back and listened to it again, I did hear, of course, Ruby Sales talk about racism and call it by name. You do hear Latosha Brown talk about structural racism. And then here again with Camus Bell and Rashad Robinson, they both referenced specifically by name racism. Mm -hmm. And I think that's important as well in that the title, let's just even talk about the title. Hello, privilege. It's me, Chelsea. I understand that once you get to the description, it talks, it references white privilege, mm -hmm. but even with um, the not mentioning and, and kind of skirting around using the words racism and white supremacy with regards to Chelsea and even Tim Wise, I don't believe that even Tim Wise said racism or white supremacy. No. Um, then they went to Jelly Roll. Um, you know, <laughs> that was a cultural I, experience, eh? <laughs> that's, that's what I have to say about that. <laughs> I was like, wow. Okay. But it led, and then it led into, and here's where I felt like it was a punch in the gut. Definitely the first time watching it. And then even feeling this same way, watching it again, yeah. because now she takes us to Tyshawn and his family. Mm -hmm. And here's what I want to say about that. 
for me, this felt like an exploitation of black pain Mm -hmm. to talk to him and his family about their experiences with him being in prison for 14 years and with Tyshawn's mother being, you know, using heroin for the time that she did. So it, it, I, I do understand that she wanted to connect back to this time in her life where she should have been able to acknowledge that, huh, I'm riding around with my black boyfriend and every time we get pulled over, he gets in trouble and I get set free. I, I, I understand that it was necessary for her unpacking right. to go back to this place in time that was an experience that she had. But I do not love the way that this black family had to be re-traumatized in going back there with her Mm -hmm. in order for her to come to some moment of enlightenment when this is just the black experience that that was just their experience that was incredibly difficult and painful for them and so now let's put that on you know the screen to be absorbed by and consumed by a white audience who's going to uh, you know I, i i've gone now to chelsea's page to read the comments and i've gone to some of the other people who were on the podcast and read some of the comments. And I was really not surprised, but I think people might be surprised to find that so many people wanted to talk about, well, if Tyshawn hadn't been selling drugs and he wouldn't have gone to jail, if he hadn't been convicted of armed robbery, then he wouldn't have gone to jail. So this is about his poor decisions and that's Mm -hmm. why he was in jail. So now again, we have racism's favorite thing is let's deny, let's deflect, let's let's just dance around it and mm-hmm. talk about how it's got everything to do with all of these other things other than the fact that there is systemic structural racism at play with the facts that they were pulled over and Tyshawn was put into the system at an early age and never found a way out. Chelsea is set free and becomes a millionaire comedian in Hollywood. I feel like she could have still gone and spent time with them and connected and talked to them, but not put it on the screen like that. And I'm not trying to be one of those people who's like, oh, I'd have done it better and blah, blah, blah. But really, this is important work. And it's important that these conversations are had. And it's important that we assess things critically. And in this, it's like, is there no other way for you to tell the story of Tyshawn and his family and and have that without you putting it on the screen? Because like you said, there is no way. Like, it was breathtaking to me to watch him through Mm -hmm. the interaction. And you could just tell Mm -hmm. there were points where it seemed like he was having a hard time even, like, like breathing and not breaking down. Absolutely. And like, it's, it's just, it was traumatizing and re-traumatizing for this family. And it makes me sad and angry, you know, and I don't know what their conversations were and maybe they insisted and they wanted to be, but uh, all of that aside, like it just, it did not have to be that way. And she could have still told that story. So I'm kind of stuck on that. Sure. And I think that's a, that's important to note is that white people coming into the work and into the desire to become white allies should not need for black people to talk about, tell me what it's like to be black. Yeah. That should not be the conversation. And she said it a few times throughout the documentary. I'm trying to help white people understand what it's like to be a person of color in this country. So we're not asking you to do that. That's absolutely not even possible for white people to understand. We simply are asking for you to acknowledge and go fix it. Mm-hmm. And in go fix it, that doesn't mean to take up all of the space and to turn around and, and start creating your own platforms. Again, listening and learning from Black voices and using and putting your resources and your access towards learning from Black voices and using okay. and putting your resources. It's important that when white people come into the awareness of their privilege and wanting to learn how to become allies to people of color, the component that is not necessary is for them to have black people explain to them what it's like to be black or for us to go through some, you know, long explanation of 
our experiences of racism. That's not the purpose of this. That's not the goal. The goal is at the point where a white person enters into the awareness that they do benefit from privilege and they do have a responsibility to tear down their own racism and white supremacy, the next steps have to be getting to the nearest Black educator to listen to, to listen and learn from, and then begin using their resources to support, uplift what that message is from Black and Indigenous people of color, not feeling that they have to be so tied to and have this need to dissect and evaluate Black pain and Black experiences. There there has to be almost an intention to not ask Black people to break that down for white people in order for them to feel like they should be in this fight with us. I was having some conversations on my personal Facebook page about this documentary, and I continue to hear the whole, well, there are so many white people who don't believe that white privilege exists, so this is a good way to bring them into the conversation. This is a great starting point. This is a great first step. My response to that also is, listen, if you consider yourself a white ally, then this should not be the first entry into this conversation, the Handler's documentary. If you are a white person who has been learning from and listening to Black voices in this space and working on dismantling your own racism and showing up for Black lives and showing up for racial justice, then Chelsea Handler's Netflix documentary should not be the first time that the white people in your life are exposed to this message. They should be hearing it from you. (laughs) They should have already heard your story as a white person. Well, here's how I learned about my white privilege, right? And I think that's the missing component is if white people are sitting around waiting for a wealthy white comedian in Hollywood to put together a documentary before they get into the conversation, you're failing. That's a massive fail. You are just taking up space. So let's not give credit for this documentary being a starter to the conversation. Because if you are living and showing up for Black people, and if you are about Black liberation, then as a white person who calls himself an ally, all of the white people in within a 100 mile vicinity of you should have all already heard this message and should already know what your experience coming into this work looks like. And what does your, how did you come to the awareness of your white privilege? When we talk about white people taking up space, are they taking up space in the sense of they are using their voices to the white people around them at their white jobs, at their in their neighborhoods with the parents of the kids that go to school with their kids, the white people around you as a white ally should already know this because you, that's who you're talking to about it. I'm interested in are people going to start to listen to so many of the incredible black leaders that she had as guests on this documentary. So I really appreciate that she had the representative from Black Lives Matter um, Mm -hmm. and, and showed that. So as I'm going to these platforms to of course, you know, already following Black Lives Matter and, and the different cities where Black Lives Matter has a, you know, a group and a movement that they're working on. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't know about white people for Black Lives. So I'm also now, you know, following yeah. them. I, I felt like in that section, so it was good to hear what Melina Abdullah was saying. And she even explained to Chelsea that what so many of Black people feel as far as we're tired, we don't want to hold white people's hand right. through this awareness that they're having, right? Mm -hmm. But that's exactly why you have the anti-racism educators and and leaders and teachers who are, uh, and activists who are the ones that prepare ourselves and put ourselves in the position to hold space for the white people as they are doing this in whatever capacity we choose to. I think there are varying degrees with which Mm -hmm. we choose to do this work Um, as black people in this movement, recognizing that we do want and need white allies to be involved in this. Um, Because again, and we heard that a lot in the documentary that white privilege is a white problem, but we also have to understand that 
racism is not just a black problem. So it can't live in the black community and white people feel like they should not be involved. Yes, be involved, but know your place, know where that is. And that's, that's critical. Mm -hmm. Racism is not a black person problem. Like this affects us all. And this is something that everybody has to deal with. Absolutely. And there was a young black woman who was on the documentary during the section where they were outside of LAPD, outside of the police commission. And she said something that I wrote down because I thought it was, of course, brilliant and needs to be highlighted when she was talking to Chelsea, you know, Chelsea, again, standing in the role of I am a white person. I want to know what is my personal responsibility? How can I be a better white person to people of color? Mm -hmm. And what she said is that as a white person, you need to be advocating in all spaces, even when it makes you uncomfortable, not just going to one meeting or being in activist spaces. That was huge as well. So it's like throughout the documentary, the knowledge and the wisdom coming from the Black women and the Black voices and the Indigenous voices in this documentary, it was it was like, this is the documentary. This is the takeaway. What we are saying is how you come into this work with your privilege as a white person who wants to be an ally. And then Dahlia Ferlito, who is with um, White People for Black Lives, she said something I thought was powerful also that I wrote down. She said, it's not a one-time project for a Netflix series. It's mm-hmm. a lifelong, daily, 100% being committed to showing up for racial justice for the rest of your lives. Yeah. So when we understand and when we say things like white people, go get your white people. And when we say things like, yes, white people should be having these conversations with other white people, that what Dahlia said, that has got to be the overall message, Mm -hmm. recognizing that it's not these, you know, one-time things. It's, it's not, you know, doing this documentary series and that being it, but knowing that you are showing up for black indigenous people of color and you're showing up for racial, racial justice for the rest of your lives. It's got to come back to listening to and learning from black voices and and uplifting those voices and taking action once you have done your internal work first and once you've learned. Because if you're listening and you are investing in um, being educated by a, uh, a woman of color or by a Black woman or um, a Black leader in anti-racism, you are going to start to know that automatically you know what it looks like to not take up space Mm -hmm. and you know what it looks like to not center yourself because you've been listening and learning to those Black voices. Yeah. So do you have any closing thoughts? I, I think the closing thought for me is, you know, Carol Anderson said it at the very end of the documentary that white people not coming in saying that you know this but coming and seeking knowledge. So if I have to say overall, right, and I I appreciated that you mentioned that we are looking at this from a critical perspective because we have to, right? That's also, that's Mm -hmm. where we get critical race theory from. That's the purpose of social sciences. um, And that's why we do this work. So if we look at it and say that the, if we listen to Chelsea's desire and what she expresses that she wanted to do with this documentary. She wanted to know as a white woman, what is her personal responsibility, how to be a better white person to people of color without making it a thing. I want to say first, that is the right question to be asking. But then the answer to that is listen to and learn from black voices. So as I look at, let me count the Black voices, Kevin Hart, Tiffany Haddish, Ruby Sales, Latosha Brown, Carol Anderson, Kamu Bell, Rashad Robinson, Tyshawn and his family, Ryan Haygood of the New Jersey Institute for Social Justice, the team over at Black Lives Matter LA, as well as the White People for Black Lives. I feel like this could be used as a great entry into the conversation, not giving mm-hmm. credit for starting it, but can I see it as a opportunity for white people to enter into the conversation only if their takeaway is how can I find and listen to and learn from black voices? And so do I feel like that was accomplished in this? I think I can say yes. 
Thank you again for coming on and talking to me about this and processing through this with me. It is an honor to have this conversation. And you are an anti-racism educator. I want to be clear on that. I am not. <laughs> so I've learned a great deal just having this conversation with you. What do you have, if anything, coming up in the future and where can people find you? Oh, great. Thanks for asking that. I have another online webinar coming up at the end of September September 29th. And that webinar is called Five Differences Between Being Non-Racist and Being Anti-Racist. This will be the fourth one that I've done in the past couple of weeks. And I figure as long as people keep signing up for them, then I'll keep offering them. So that's coming up. There's an Eventbrite link that I'll have posted on my Instagram page, which is Satya Yoga Trips. Um, and Satya is spelled S-A-T-Y-A. That name will be changing. So I will, I'll talk about that once people you'll get to follow. People will get to follow and see what that will be changing to. And then in October, there's a lot going on. I'm hosting two anti-racism and yoga trips in Montgomery, where we go to the Lynching Memorial and the Legacy Museum. The first one is for white people who desire to be good ancestors and good allies. So that one is already full. But then the second one that's coming up, which is October 25th through 27th, that one is a special trip for Black women only. So if there are any Black women who are interested in experiencing the Equal Justice Initiative with myself and other Black women in a space that is designed for us specifically and a safe place for us, then I invite them to reach out to me. And then I'm also running two anti-racism and yoga workshops in the Atlanta area. Um, and they're both on Sunday, October 20th. There's a morning session. There's an afternoon session. Um, and there's an event right link to that to sign up for that as well. And if anyone has questions about the offerings that I have coming up, my email address is Tina Strawn Life at gmail.com and stay tuned for all of the rebranding of the trips and my work. And I will speak more to that coming up in November. So if you want to get on the mailing list, email me or follow me on Instagram. Yeah, I'm excited to see what your new brand will be. I am excited to uh, talk more about it. Yeah, thank you. Cool. All right. Well, thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. My pleasure. Hello, my name is Rebecca Baruki, and you probably don't know me and have never heard of me, but I have something extremely important that I want to share with you today, or at least important to me, and I hope that you will make important to you too. I am a mother of five children from 21 all the way down to four and a half, almost five years old. I am a writer. I have written three books for adults. You Have Four Minutes to Change Your Life, which is a meditation book. Managing the Motherload, which is about pursuing your dreams in the midst of motherhood, in the context of nourishing other people, and the Calm and Clear Mindfulness Kit, which uh, a lot of people love and I'm really excited about. But what I'm here to talk to you about today is my brand new project, something that I am doing on my own, but I need so much help with. It's my first children's book. It is called Zara's Big Messy Day That Turned Out Okay. It is about a beautiful little girl who's kind of partially based on me. She is a black biracial seven-year-old girl who is navigating life and the everyday obstacles of a seven-year-old because I'm telling you, being a kid is hard, y'all. Like It really, really is. And she has been big emotions that she she needs to learn to manage for her own good. And she learns this beautiful breathing technique from her mother in the story. And what's really cool about it is that it is a meditation and mindfulness book for kids, but it is centered around this gorgeous little girl and her big personality and her incredible story of just being this regular kid overcoming really big obstacles with a little help, but really empowering herself to do it on her own. And the reader is going to learn along with her how to do that for themselves. And this is so critical and so important to me because I was a child who suffered greatly from anxiety and depression and having a really hard time expressing myself, expressing anger, expressing 
in grief. And I needed something like this. And thankfully, at age 10, I received an exercise like this from a counselor of mine, and it changed my life. It brought me back from the brink of suicide at that very, very, very young age. It helped me to empower myself to seek more tools and more help to manage my anxiety and my depression and really take care of myself, my emotional health and my mental health. And another reason that this this book is so important to me, and I hope again that you will make it important to you, is that this isn't just about enriching the lives of the reader, the people who buy the book. And I know that you will want to be part of this, even if you don't have little ones in your life, because what I'm also doing with the funds that we are raising with this book is gifting free books to school children. We are starting in Baltimore City, in Baltimore City Elementary Schools. We are moving on to schools in Northern New Jersey, in Philadelphia, in Washington, D.C. We're taking this on a national tour as funds keep coming in with the Kickstarter campaign that is going on now and is only running until October 11th. So I hope that you'll really jump on today to go to zarabook.com, Z-A-R-A book.com and see that Kickstarter campaign and support it. We have already raised enough for 300 free books for kids, over 300 free books for kids that I am going to hand deliver, lead assemblies, meditation classes, give them little gifts and activities to reinforce all of the lessons in the book. It's going to be wonderful. It's going to be an incredible experience for these kids of learning not only how to handle their big emotions, but having someone tell them, having someone who looks like them that comes from a place similar to where they come from, telling them that their anger, their sadness, their joy, their happiness, it all matters. I see it all. They are seen and their voices are valid and their words are worthy. And this little character who I <laughs> am calling the Doc McStuffins of mental wellness for children. And if you don't know Doc McStuffins, you gotta get to know her. She's amazing. They're gonna learn from this little girl who's just like them, who looks just like them, that they're okay and that they are strong enough and smart enough to take care of all of the big stuff in their lives because what an empowered person also knows how to do is ask for help. And that's what Zara does. She asks for help, she gets it, and she learns how to help herself. So one more time, or maybe I'll say it a couple more times, please, please, please go to zarabook.com. That's Z-A-R-A book.com. You will be able to pledge directly to support a classroom. I have an option to support a partial classroom or to gift an entire classroom full of books to kids. They will get a card from you. You will get gifts from me as a thank you. You can buy a book or two or three for yourself or little ones in your life. Think about holiday giving and all the people in your life who would love this book, young and old. And starting at the three book option, you even get an opportunity to put your name in the book as a friend of Zara in the dedication section of the book. I'm going to list all of those very special Kickstarter contributors at a $75 and up level who loved Zara, who wanted to see her succeed, who became a part of her village to raise her up. They're going to be named in the book, or you can put in a name of someone that you love, a dedication, a memorial, whatever you'd like. One more time, for real this time, I am Rebecca Baruki. I am seeking your support for Zara's big messy day that turned out okay. It is an important cause that I hope to turn into a mission that is sustained for years to come with more books, with tons more free books for kids, and with more amazing people being part of the village. It's Z. Z-A-R-A-Book.com, ZaraBook.com, Z-A-R-A-Book.com. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for your time. 